see this. I look at my nearly 10-year-old and he's been making some really not strong choices lately around um, his behaviour. Just at home, at school, he's amazing. Um, but really having those discussions with him around, you know, what what is the purpose behind you know, saying this, doing this, behaving in this particular manner. And a lot of the time he goes, I don't know, I just do it. And I think from a developmental perspective, it's really hard to make strong choices when you're developmentally not able and don't have the capacity to understand the consequences. And so, yeah, I think it's a, it's, it's a topic that is super important because in the online world as you know you know we're online so much of the time now and so we've had to have those discussions around you know is the person who they say they are I mean we don't let our kids go on to any group online gaming or anything like that because well firstly I think they're too young but secondly I don't think they have the capacity to be able to make those those decisions and know that chatting to somebody they may not be I mean they they understand it on the surface, but don't deeply understand what the consequences could be. Kia ora. Welcome to Humans at Work. I'm Jules, your host. Thanks for joining me and our latest guest. And thanks for taking some time in your day to indulge your curiosity about other people and their humanness. If your thirst is unquenched after this, check out humansatwork.org. Now let's begin. everybody we're here today with Sophie I'm going to ask Sophie to introduce herself tell us where she's sitting right now what part of the world and where is her happy place hey Jules I'm so glad that we've been able to finally align our schedules after was it four attempts I think so thank you so much for having me today and I'm currently sitting in my home office which is um a really I've made it a really restful cocoon for me and my work but uh, currently living in Cairns but we are actually going to make the trip back to South Australia and we're moving back to Adelaide so mm, so that's on the on the cards for later in the year we're going to do uh, three and a half months of uh, caravanning down the east coast so a bit of an adventure and my happy place is in the forest barefoot usually that with my sounds, kids that sounds beautiful but first mm. I have to ask why Adelaide well I'm from Adelaide so my I, I grew up in Adelaide and we've got a family farm in the Adelaide Hills so we've got 60 acres there and we moved away wanting to move to Cairns because we were chasing the sun uh, after being, you know, with wood fires and freezing cold for most of our lives. And we just wanted to try something different. So we thought, oh, well, we'll give far North Queensland a go. And yeah, I mean, things have changed a little bit through the years. So my dad was has been quite unwell for quite a few years, but we left knowing that he wasn't 100% at the end of last year and he's got sort of steadily worse throughout the year. So he can no longer fly, which means that he can't fly up to visit us like we planned. Uh, and then my mum wants to move off her farm. She lives there on her own. She's amazing at 75. And so... Yeah, we just need more space and we want to be back to, you know, family and friends. So, yeah. I mean, I have, weirdly enough, I have sort of a whole lot of family in Adelaide. Oh, um, really? 
Yeah, really strange. I, I think it's sort of strange because, you know, I'm originally from the UK. My yeah. mum has got two brothers, um, had two brothers, and both brothers moved to Australia, you know, 40, 40 years ago, yeah. and they both settled in Adelaide. So I've got an aunt and an uncle and four cousins with their families um, who have all grown up in Adelaide. One now lives in Melbourne with, with their kids, but all the rest live in Adelaide. So uh, that's just a really weird coincidence, isn't it? I we love that. Well, that, about it. that means then that you just have to come visit and we'll exactly. just have to, you know, our kids will just have to meet and have go run wild on the farm together. So that sounds perfect. I sounds know, right? Perfect. And <laughs> so the farm does it have lots of forests, or is it? You know, so, well, sort of. Land? It was well, it was grazing land. So, Mum um, bought the land, gosh, nearly twenty five years ago now, and it was just vacant grazing land and in that time she's had cattle on it she's got horses so my boys have each got I've got two boys um one's just turned seven and another one's about to turn 10 and each of them have a pony so we had to leave them behind when we moved up here which was very sad so they've got a pony each there and then I've got one of my old horses there and then apart from that it's really she's sort of let it rewild which has been really lovely because we've been watching over the years trees springing up and shrubs springing up and she's been really uh, quite careful about making sure that any plants she's planted have been native so that she's attracted native birds and wildlife and it's really beautiful it's really gorgeous that sounds amazing. And if you drink wine, obviously there's, you know, there's wine growing country yeah. around there, right? There, there is, but we don't drink any anymore. So we haven't drunk alcohol for about three years, my husband and I, but we were big drinkers and we used to very much partake in the local wine areas. And um, there's a lovely gin distillery actually just in Harndorf as you come in there and they've got some beautiful gins there. But um, no, we do the non-alc, the non-alc uh, drinking now, so... So what what led you to to stop drinking, if you don't mind me asking? I don't mind you asking at all. A couple of reasons. So we did, we were sort of looking at at our healthy, becoming a healthier couple and we did no sugar November. And as part of that, we cut out, you know, all your chocolate and sugar and the, the standard things that you would find sugar in. And I was a big champagne and sparkling drinker so I used to love a good glass of bubbles or more than one and so I thought well that's got a really high sugar content why don't I cut the alcohol out as well and we'd done sort of dry July and we'd done we've done sort of things along the along the time that where you know we'd stop drinking for a few weeks at a time and we'd think oh well it's not really doing anything so we're not we'll just go back to drinking because it's easier um but what we found this time is when we cut out all of our, uh, the sugar and the alcohol, we felt a lot better. And we could, I don't know, we got to the end of November and I know that's heading into sort of, it was heading into the Christmas season. My birthday's the middle of December as well. There's New Year's. And we just kind of kept going and we thought, oh, well, we'll see, you know, see if we can still keep not drinking because we weren't really noticing a huge difference in not drinking, not having a drink. So we were substituting and making sure that we had sparkling water in the fridge. We would have, you know, fresh lime and strawberries and cucumber and lemons off the farm. And, you know, we would always have something fresh and lovely that to break the habit of reaching into the fridge and grabbing, you know, a bottle of white or sparkling. 
so there was that reason um and sort of just organically kept going but there was really you know a, a few years ago my husband started having quite a few mental health challenges he's a police officer and he was finding that he was drinking a lot and often not knowingly but he would not have an off button so he would just kind of keep drinking and keep drinking and and then feel really crappy the next day and then go to work and be stressed and and come home and have a few drinks and it was just not a healthy way of living and leading his life and I certainly have always been a big drinker as well I used to sell wine funnily enough so I used to work for uh, what used to be fosters and then split up into fosters and uh, treasury wine so I stayed with the wine part of the business so I have always um, loved wine and been a drinker and I just found that I was drinking and then just not feeling very good the next day and I think I kind of hit I hit 40 and had a big 40th and then went really I don't I don't I don't have the time I don't have the energy to feel yuck the next day while my body's taking a lot longer to process um, something that potentially I don't really need in my life so yeah so there's quite a few different reasons Mm. I mean it's really interesting how people come to a similar position um you know I don't really drink either um Mm. I was never a big drinker in fact I until I turned 30 I couldn't stand the taste of alcohol it didn't stop me drinking when I was at university a lot but I didn't enjoy it you know I drank to get drunk or to do what friends were doing yeah Um, and then I moved to New Zealand and you know New Zealand does have a a a good drinking culture well you've got good 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 wines and I and I thought oh these wines are really nice and so I kind of got into yeah into drinking drinking red wine um but I could never keep up with the kiwis I have to say um uh but then I found that a little bit perhaps like your husband actually in that I would I I used to work in Wellington City at that time Mm. and I've always done fairly high-powered intense jobs that's kind of my personality as well but also the kind of work I enjoy doing and I'd find Mm -hmm. myself sitting on the train coming home thinking about a glass of wine I might only have one glass but when I found myself thinking about it I thought well you know I don't really want to have a dependency Mm. it's just a mental dependency on something Um, and then I needed to have an operation and I I thought well I'll you know I'll just stop drinking at all Mm. in the sort of few months before the operation and then I kind of never started again Um, but I you know if I'm somewhere particularly somewhere warm and there's a nice gin and tonic on offer you know Mm. I'll, I'll have it and I'll enjoy it but I find that it's one less thing to think about you know when you go out to dinner you don't have to worry about who's drinking who's driving mm. you don't have to worry about the next day and that feeling yes. of, you know fog and inertia and and what have yeah. you. we don't have to worry about the role model role modeling for our kids. kids my partner doesn't I mean he'll have like a, a no alcohol beer or, or whatever mm. or one with alcohol but he can take it or leave it yes um, and I find it's kind of like it's taken off a layer of pressure and organization mm. and logistics that we don't need another layer right we've got enough layers um so you know we don't we don't kind of miss it but equally if we want a glass of wine at a party we might have a glass of wine but then we it's not a part of our habit it's not a part of our life 
So it's um, about breaking that habit, isn't it? Yeah. That's that's really interesting you bring that up about the kids and role modelling because we were starting to see in our kids, they'd be like, oh, you know, you're going to have a glass of wine tonight or, oh, daddy, you're going to have a beer while you're cooking the barbecue. And we, we, it really, it really stopped us in our tracks actually around what we see we become. And we were role modeling so much other healthy parts of living that when you see what your habits, the effect your habits have on your kids and those around you, it's been really interesting to watch them transition because now they have the chat with us, oh, I don't think I'll ever drink alcohol. And we have the chat, well, you can try whatever you want to try. You know, there's no judgment from from our part as long as what you're doing is making you happy and you're with safe people who will take care of you if something goes wrong. Because I said there can be times when you're drinking, particularly, you know, when I was younger, you know, you go out and you go and get drunk. You don't know what's happening. And we've been very upfront with our boys to say, if you want to try alcohol, if you want to try something new, make sure it's with people who will take care of you and that you're safe with and you're making those strong choices about who you're surrounding yourself with when you do try those things. And so I found that really interesting, actually, that you've mentioned that because we are exactly the same, you know, very careful around how we role model particular things to our boys. Yeah, I mean, parenting is a constant adaptation, isn't it? I think as they grow Mm. older and they they notice things. Mm. And so that's one area that we don't have to worry about. There are Mm. other areas like screen use, for example. Yes. Probably terrible, terrible role models um you know and maybe uh, yeah. a bit on the healthy eating and sleeping or whatever yeah. um at least that's that's kind of one area and you know my partner and I joke about joke but it's not really that funny is that when we were teenagers we were in some very unsafe situations oh. and we're yeah. still here by luck not by any other you know any other reason yeah. um and you know luck is is cruel um, so we sort of we don't really want uh, our kids we've got four between us we mm. want them to be sensible about mm. risk taking because mm. you know they have to take some risks you know they'll find themselves in situations yeah. where they need to think on their feet you know and mm. they need to be clear-headed about things mm. uh, and alcohol is one of those um, almost sort of invisible risk factors you know there's yeah. a lot of talk about other risk factors but actually alcohol is so prevalent and it but just, it's so easy to oh, get too. So easy. I, yeah. I, I mean you think about the amount of um the amount of time and and it's funny because my best friend and I were only talking about this the other day and we both said there were times where we're not even sure how we're still alive you know because there were times that you you, you couldn't remember what had happened or you woke up somewhere that you didn't realize you were going and I think it's really really good to be having these discussions with our kids because they weren't the discussions that I had with my parents no no fault of, of their because them because they grew up in a 
uh, a generation where you know no seatbelts in cars and drinking and driving was fine you know all you know smoking on airplanes you know smoking, I still Jesus remember that smoking seat oh I remember gosh. that as well I remember the smell and I remember because my parents used to we flew quite a bit because my dad's English so we flew to the UK quite a bit when I was younger and I still remember the smoking and my kids are like what do you mean people used to smoke on planes I'm like right <laughs> what yeah. But as we grow and develop, hopefully we can not 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 force our kids not to try things and not to take risks because we've always been we've always allowed our kids like I'm sure you have to to make uh, informed choices, but knowing that there's consequences at the end of those choices, and I think they're really good conversations to have. They are, and they're re- they're really difficult as well, mm. and, and they're kind of constant. My partner has a saying that he says to the kids all the time: "You can do stupid things without being stupid about it." You oh know? my gosh, I love that. And he's, you know, he's constantly trying to reinforce the fact that of course you're going to do things, of course you're yeah. going to try things, but just take a moment, you know. And that's one of the things that I talk about a lot when I'm mm-hmm. when I'm helping people with decision making and conscious decision making is. Mm-hmm. Um, you can be risky you can be risk tolerant and courageous and all of those things but take a moment and just think um, be really clear about the fact that you're making a conscious decision and what's your exit strategy you know we say that all the time and and I think as women if maybe our kind of generation Mm. um, you know I grew up watching the street when I was walking down it I still do yeah, that's right. So it's kind of like, well, you apply that, you know, you apply that thinking into mm-hmm. you're going to go and do things because you're exploring and you're learning the world. And how how will you ever know, actually, yeah. until you've, actually, you've experienced mm-hmm. some of that? But yeah. just take a little pause and think about, you know, consciously, I'm going to do this. Yeah. And what's my exit strategy? You know? Yeah. yeah. And I love that. I love that so much. But it's interesting you bring up the point of, you know, watching the street because I don't think that's changed and and I don't think it matters what gender you are. You know, we always talk to our kids about keeping themselves safe, who they're surrounding themselves with and the same. We don't sort of say exit strategies, but we do definitely talk about who you surround yourself with to be able to make the best decisions and to have the, the most, you know, best possible outcomes in whatever you're deciding to do. Mm. Yeah, I think for um, certainly for the teenagers that we have, the street has become the cyber world. Yeah, no, so the sort of the the emotional and kind of mental toll um, can be, you know, almost worse Mm -hmm. for some from the Mm -hmm. cyber world than than a physical toll. Um, But of course, the physical world's still there. So, you know, they've got they're really street smart now about, you know, cyberbullying and phishing scams, Mm -hmm. you know, and what's real and what's not. And, you know, who's behind Facebook, you know, and all of those ethics stuff. But that doesn't really translate sometimes into what it's like in the world. So they, yeah. you know, and you can tell people, you can tell a story, you can tell lots of stories, but actually um, part of the world is going and experiencing those things. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, knowing some of your safety mechanisms and your techniques, 
yeah. that's just as valid. I mean, going into a big meeting, you have to have a few yeah. things like that as well, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, how exactly. am I going to get out of this situation if it turns to custard? Yeah, that's so true. It's so true. So it's almost a, a matter of how do you how do you pull together all of your strategies for creating the best outcome possible? And if that outcome doesn't materialise, what's your strategy for either turning it around or exiting in a safe and appropriate manner? It's active strategy rather than, you know, I've got a plan, um, it's all going to work out fine. And Mm. then, you know, and you stick with that even when, the world's crumbling all around you. Yeah. you know, it's that ability to see what's really happening and make adaptive choices all of the time. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, almost everybody needs to kind of hone in terms of their skill sets, but certainly kids and teenagers, mm. um, they're mm. trying to do it all the time. They work really hard at it, but it, it's it's not easy. But I think it's also not easy for kids either because I look at my nearly 10-year-old and he's been making some really not strong choices lately around um, his behaviour just at home, at school, he's amazing. Um, but really having those discussions with him around, you know, what what is the purpose behind, you know, saying this, doing this, behaving in this particular manner? And a lot of the time he goes, I don't know, I just do it. And I think from a developmental perspective, it's really hard to make strong choices when you're developmentally not able and don't have the capacity to understand the consequences and so, yeah, I think it's a it's it's a topic that is super important because in the online world, as you know, you know, we're online so much of the time now. And so we've had to have those discussions around, you know, is the person who they say they are? I mean, we don't let our kids go on to any group online gaming or anything like that because, well, firstly, I think they're too young. But secondly, I don't think they have the capacity to be able to make those those decisions and know that chatting to somebody, they may not be, I mean, they they understand it on the surface, but don't deeply understand what the consequences could be. Yes. No. Yeah, that's right. Um, that's a topic close to my own parenting heart at the moment with a, mm. a nine, nine-year-old boy um, mm. who sometimes makes good choices and other times just does not. No, um, what is that? Oh, I, my I, husband and I have just gone, what is nine? Like he's nine and a half, but we're like, what is this? He's hit nine and all of a sudden he's regressed to a two-year-old. Yeah, I think it's all part of the natural <laughs> yeah. ebb and flow, you know, and mm. it's so difficult for them. It yeah. puts me to mind um, with this concept of shadow neural pathways when you're working with organisations and, and people on change. Mm. A lot of what you face is fear. Mm-hmm. because they cannot visualize what uh, the future will look like and you know so in that vacuum the assumption is that the future will be negative it's yeah. a scary place I'm not going to like it I'm not going to feel valued um, and part of that is because they might not have experienced a change like that or a good change you know the one that's that's you know actually made a difference and made mm-hmm. changed well and so if you um, can do scenarios with people, um, what happens in the brain is that the brain creates um, sort of uh, sketched out neural pathways, if you like. They're not full yeah. neural pathways because those people haven't actually experienced it. Yeah. There's shadow neural pathways, which enable them to, you know, enable their brains to kind of practice 
what that journey might look like. Yeah. Um, and it's such a valuable tool in a whole range of different situations to be able to say, okay, let's look at what are the possible ways this might go. You know, how mm. might this look? What might this feel like? Mm. With children, your ability to do scenarios is still really limited because, yeah. you know, they don't know what they don't know. Mm -hmm. um and so the kind of consequences conversation can be quite difficult because it's only what they've experienced and and they find that you know that scenario concept quite difficult to grasp mm -hmm. but but in kind of more professional settings it's such a useful tool to demystify and put a bit more control back in the hands of people who are going to go through some sort of process or experience or change um, because they can start to color it in themselves, you know, yeah. part of that rather than having that kind of fearful distance myself reaction. Because change is change can be scary, doesn't matter what age you are. So I really like that the way that you do that. So do you do that through actual, you know, scenarios that have happened or or scenarios that could happen, and then you work your way through what the outcomes could look like so that they have a capacity to understand what could happen in a positive, so from a positive psychology perspective, or do you look at some of the negatives and how you could potentially work through those challenges or both? Both, both. So, for example, with executive teams for, you know, um, that they tend to be, I hate to stereotype, but just from my experience, <laughs> very focused on current problems mm. and some sort of solution to those current problems. Mm. And um, the default is to go to a tried and tested process that will magically make all of those problems disappear. Yeah. Um, you know, and they've got to make decisions and be visionary and hold the line throughout that process. And it gets really gnarly mm. in, uh, in organisations yeah. more than they ever thought possible if they haven't done it before. Yeah. And so being able to sort of talk through, if you do this in this way, these are the kinds of decisions you'll need to make. And here are some of the positive or negative options that you might end up with. Mm. What you're able to do is to give them a sense of, A, their role, um, yeah. in that process um, but also be to make them see to help them see just how many trade-offs there will need to be along that path yeah nothing is ever a hundred percent positive mm. so you can't please everybody all of the all time, time. No, and, I love that. you know, they have this term here. I don't know if they have it in Australia about, you know, you're either on the bus or you're off the bus. Yeah, totally. Or on the train or off the train. Yeah. That's right. And it's kind of that, you know, well, if you don't get the vision, if you don't comply with all of our processes, if you don't engage, then you're obviously not right um, for this organization. And in some situations, you know, you end up having to get quite hard about that stuff because there's poor behavior all over the place. Yeah. Um. But in other situations, you know, you're faced with you're faced with the consequence of that approach is that you end up with not enough capability and enthusiasm and loyalty and creativity to actually deliver the value and the vision that you want. Mm. You, have, you might not have lost all of those people who are on the negative side. They're still there most of the time. Yeah. But your circle of people who are in that zone, who are going to take you forward and embed all of that that vision has shrunk because of how you've approached that change. 
so it's a it's kind of a lose 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 situation you know mm-hmm. um and it's it's tough because organizational change like that is full of trade-offs like timing and cost and you know mm-hmm. quite often some really hard decisions that have to be implemented mm-hmm. um, but what I always say to people is you need to understand what's the end of this going to look like which yeah. is basically the beginning of the hard bit you know we'll do a change for you and then you've got the hard bit because you've got to lead this organization and this group of people that's left mm-hmm. and, you know mm-hmm. so your job then starts like that's the really hard target and and that's very difficult for people to understand so that's where you know scenarios about a change process might last a year or six months and then the embedding and of the change lasts five years like Mm -hmm. so where do you want to put a lot of your effort is on thinking ahead and making choices that are about the the sort of the entirety not Mm -hmm. just the next six months Mm -hmm. and it's probably hard like coming from an HR perspective because my brain always goes to the people often it's hard for the people within the business to see that long-term vision and being able to partner with a business to help them to implement that change in a productive and more positive manner is a gift. I think that, you know, consultants like you and I get to do in our work to be able to help support organisations to be not only good but great, but understanding that along that journey, it, it's not going to be all rainbows and sunshine. No, not at all. And mm. you know, I wanted to understand understand a bit more about your um your history in HR, <laughs> um because I you know I have worked in HR too, although mm. I wouldn't call myself an HR professional. I never do call myself an HR professional. I have people <laughs> on my team who are. Um, I sort of fell into it because I love the innovation that you can bring from a people perspective to an organization. It's mm. sort of a different angle, if you like. Mm. One of the things I found about HR is that it's often it, there's a whole lot of invisible effort within the HR function that the organization doesn't see. And therefore there's a lack of recognition of the value of HR. And if you take an HR process, for example, unless it's a very simple one, like applying for leave or what have Mm. you, Mm. most of the organization will not understand the point of that process. No. So true. So true. Uh, I mean, I, I've been in HR now about 15 years and I fell into it as well. I remember um, we did a, a, a move to the country, uh, rural, so eight hours west of Adelaide um, with my husband's job, policing, and my husband said, oh, there's a job at the local council. And I'm like, oh, okay, and I needed work. And he said, it's HR. I'm like, what does HR do? Don't they just, you know, do contracts and recruit people? I had no concept, like none, and did a bit of research into, you know, what is an HR position responsible for? And I was just blown away with the amount of responsibility that, you know, when you dive into the position itself and and it can be 
you know, as broad or as specialised as you like as well. It's such a huge part of the way uh, the system within a workplace can function or not function. And so I got the job and uh, I did do my research before I went for my interview and uh, loved it, absolutely loved it. So, yeah, I, I feel like I see a lot of HR people who are not, not supported, not respected. They are consulted yet probably not listened to. They often don't have a strategic level impact or a seat at the table at the executive level and yet are expected to be responsible for all of the people at all of the time. And if they're not behaving appropriately or not productive or are not engaged enough or not recruiting the right people, we're not retaining the right people, HR gets blamed for that. What I've learned through not only working as an HR professional, both, you know, I started at the at the bottom and worked my way right up to, you know, to senior executive level. Really, it's about how you firstly taking responsibility for how you choose to show up in that position and taking care of yourself. A lot of people in human resources burn out because they are trying to be everything to all the people all the time and they end up completely giving, overgiving and exhausting themselves and not being able to keep the momentum up. I think there's also a factor there of a lot of organisations not respecting the expertise and not valuing the expertise of human resources within their business. Now, I think through COVID, that changed a lot because everybody just threw their hands in the air and went, oh, my goodness, HR, help. And in the process kind of went, oh, my goodness, you actually do all of this as well as you're trying to keep our people healthy and well. And so I think... Certainly what I saw as I was going into businesses post, you know, the, the lockdowns and, and all of the, the real, you know, really deep part of COVID, once we started to emerge, definitely the discussions around mental health and well-being, emotional health and well-being, uh, workplace happiness, and the way that we're leading our people, the way that we're showing up for ourselves, not only for the people in our teams and the, and the clients at the end of the service, or for the products we're producing, there was a shift and I'm hoping that is starting to change where HR are being more valued and they're seeing as instead of just being an advisor or a, an officer, an administrative, um, I think it's shifted from more of the, the functional systems and processes, which all still need to be there, obviously, for, for a business to work optimally, but to step into more of a strategic Part of the business where um, how do we, you know, what's the employee value proposition? How do we attract and retain appropriate staff? How do we create, you know, beautiful career pathways for people? Or how do we make sure that while people are here within our business, they're thriving and they're engaged and they're productive, but also getting to be able to have those discussions at 
the higher level within the businesses. I don't think all organisations are doing that by any means, but I do think that there is a shift towards um, valuing HR more, which makes my heart really happy because being in HR, I know how much you carry because you often can't, you're expected to be confident and yet you can't confide in many people. You're keeping a lot of information where people offload to you and then just walk away and go, oh, thanks so much. I'm glad I offloaded that. Now you can just, I can go do my stuff. And now, but then you're kind of left with the, well, hang on a sec, you've just divulged this to me. Now, now I need to decide, do I do something further with it or do I just keep it to myself and watch and wait? You know, so I, I feel that there is a, the, the position is probably not understood as, uh, as well as it could be about the, the, the mental load and the emotional load as well as, uh, you know, making sure everyone's legislatively compliant but making sure they're well and they're happy and then how do you then attach that to the strategy and KPIs and, um, and the profit and the bottom line. So, you know, it's a big job. It's a big job. I love it though. I, I just love HR. Weird, yeah. I know. I mean, that's really, no, no, it's not weird at all. I mean, I think <laughs> I, I think um, 90% of my um, consulting team are all HR professionals. Um, and it's not that we don't do kind of people-focused work. I think it's that coming into independent kind of bespoke consulting enables you to do much more of that strategic thinking mm. and that strategic work. I was going to say, I think, uh, it's what's really interesting for me, and I, I don't know um, whether this is right or anybody would agree with me or not, but I think the the issue that I can see has happened over the last 20 years, that shows how old I am, is... Right, we're, we're equal. <laughs> ...is that um, somewhere there's become lost this concept that an organisation is a collection of people Mm, and it's humans it's, you know it's a collection of human beings who happen to work um in the same sort of loose structure mm. and what what happens is uh you box box those people in through processes or mm. naming or functions and then what's happened with the shift of to, from leadership uh in the leadership space is that the responsibility for your little box within the big box of humans has become kind of diffuse. Mm -hmm. um, so it's become the leader's responsibility to care for their little box of humans and make sure that they know the naming conventions and where they fit within this kind of box. Mm -hmm. um, and HR has become the process keepers, the legislation keepers, the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. Mm -hmm. um, which, you know, and I'm not saying that leaders aren't accountable for the health and well-being and, and you know, the team dynamics of their team, but there's so many things that aren't accurate about that picture. Number one being, you know, an organisation is only the sum of its people. Yeah. Um, and the second, and, and because of all of that, what happens is there's not enough time and effort put into thinking about the purpose of that organisation do we really understand it? Are we refreshing it? Are we clear about the value that we provide? Mm -hmm. And then helping that loose conglomeration of people um, come together around that same vision. So then mm -hmm. it becomes HR's problem 
<laughs> that people aren't in keeping with the organizational culture that we're supposed to to have or mm. we're not doing our best job for customers you know we're letting standards slip or you know we're not finding the right people with the right attitude and then it comes you know come and do a change process because we need to change <laughs> some of the people that we've got so it's become this kind of tangled web um and you know this focus on processes and procedures and guardrails um and somewhere within that the, the the kind of consideration of people humans choosing to work together and what's the why and what's hr's role mm -hmm. in helping form the why check that the why is understood revalidate the why make sure that pay and conditions and roles are meaningful in relation to the why mm -hmm. that has become something that's done uh, as part of strategy and then straight through the leaders and hr you're just supposed to come along behind mm -hmm. and put a whole lot of things in place to make sure that that is happening um, which is so boring for HR professionals, right? Totally, because we're people, people. Absolutely, you know, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, if you think about products, you know, product teams will spend a lot of time these days doing customer focus groups and human-centered design processes, um, user experience testing. They'll train their, um, their frontline people um, of, of everything to do with how to make sure that the customers buy this product then they'll do follow-up email surveys when you've bought the product, you know. So you do all of this work around your product, but you do almost none of that around your people. Yeah, it's I know it's mind-boggling. And and I and I I've said so many times to so many people, leading people's not rocket science. It's not. You just need to understand that they're humans at the end of the day. And they will be driven by different things, but how do you bring them together for the common purpose of achieving what you want to achieve in business together? Done. Solved. Look at us solving the problems <laughs> of the world. Absolutely. So um, talk to us about kindness then. My favourite topic. <laughs> <laughs> For me, kindness, particularly in workplaces, is something that is often missing. And I think it, it dovetails really nicely into the conversation we've already had around, you know, people in your business are the biggest asset to your business. So why not treat them with kindness and that they matter and let them know that they're valued that they're seen and they're heard and that, that they are more than just a number. I think we've all worked in a business where we are just a number or we feel like we're just a number. You know, my first job, not my first job, I was Baker's Delight when I was younger, but that was a, that was a great job, by the way. I used to love it. Um, my first real job was working in a call centre on an internet tech support line. Goodness knows why I thought that was going to be something that suits me. But anyway, and it was shift work. And honestly, I have ne never worked in such a, such a regimented, less human way than when I worked in that call centre. And I feel that that really showed me what it's like to not matter, but to be expected to achieve particular 
outcomes, to adhere to particular guidelines, to show up more like a robot and just be expected to just do the job. And what I felt when I finally left that job was this huge sense of relief that I could actually work in, excuse me, work in a position where, and I vowed that I would never work in a business where I was just a number again. So when I look back, kindness within workplaces has developed and grown in my heart. And I and I know that's why I have such a particular passion for working with particularly caregiving industries, so people who are taking care of people, particularly vulnerable people. So aged care, I moved into aged care and was in aged care in HR for seven and a half years and that was probably um, one of the most fulfilling yet exhausting roles um, of my whole life, Um, but I still have such passion for aged care and retirement living and first responders and healthcare because without kindness to self and without kindness within those workplaces for those humans, those humans won't survive. And that sounds really drastic, but it's absolutely true because the more that you give out and the less that you are taking care of yourself or the less that you feel taken care of within your workplace, the less you can give the people at the end of that service and the more likely you are to not stay because you will get tired, you will get jaded, you will get frustrated, you will feel like you're giving and you're getting nothing back. So kindness has this cumulative and um, beautiful, cumulative effect and beautiful way of not only supporting the people within the business, but it also helps to, the, you know, the return on investment is is huge. You've got people who are feeling more engaged they're going to be more productive they're going to have less sick leave they're less likely to have um, you know return to work claims because they'll feel safer they'll feel like they're trusted they're empowered and they'll feel healthier and that the job that they want to do and that they are doing is respected and that they're cared about so it's a really deep-seated knowing of I've not been in workplaces that are kind before and I want to change workplaces for other people which is amazing I mean who doesn't want to work for a workplace you know in a workplace where you feel that kind of kindness and that warmth Mm. um what does kindness look like so when you are called into an organization or group of leaders and they say well I'm a I'm a kind person you know um what are you saying I'm not kind uh you know how do you how do you approach that then to get them to understand what it looks and feels like to deliver as well Mm. as experience Mm. we do so a lot of the work I do is workshopping to start with and we workshop you know what does kindness look like what does it feel like what does it sound like uh just in general not in the workplace to start with so it's often quite interesting because people will be like, oh, well, kindness is, you know, smiling at someone or buying them a coffee or, um, you know, taking the time to chat to someone or doing something, you know, that, that's out of, outside of your comfort zone and you can kind of help them. And, yes, it is, but where we start, once we've workshopped, you know, what does kindness look like to you and what would a kind workplace look like and what would an unkind workplace 
look like, feel like, sound like. We kind of work through that. And then it's, well, how do we implement that? And so it, for me, kindness, when I speak about it, it's it's very much starts with self-kindness. And so I think that if we are connected to who we are, we are working in alignment, living and leading in alignment with who we are and our values. So values are super important. And when we know what we will and won't do and why we will and won't do those things, and then we have the opportunity to hear from the other people within our team around what matters to them, what drives them from a values perspective, why might they respond in a particular way? Why might they why might they do or not do something? And it's this almost aha moment of, well, if I know who I am and I'm aligned in what I'm doing and I'm not doing, and I know that the people in my team are doing exactly the same, and then we can then work towards, well, like you were talking about, what is the common purpose? What is the why of the business? Why are we all showing up at this workplace? What's driving us from a work perspective? And so when people can get really clear on personally what it means to them and then how that might um, look within the workplace as well as encompassing everybody around them, how it might look to them. And kindness can look different to different people as well. You know, kindness for me is is very specific around boundary setting, you know, by setting clear and very sort of not rigid but I'm very strict with my boundaries around my time, my emotional energy my energy levels, my mental bandwidth around what I will and won't take on and what I will and won't keep. Um, That to me is being very, very kind because if people know what what is expected of them, so you can even set the boundaries around in a workplace around, well, as a leader, I expect A, B, C and D. Within that we'll work together, but these are my non-negotiables. Then people feel safe. So then it leads into more trust. They feel more empowered once they're very clear on what is expected. But also then they know, well, in this situation, I might respond, you know, to this request in this way. And then the leader can understand how that person may respond. So for me, kindness is is there's just so many different layers to it's not just a smile. It can start with a smile. It can start with a connection to the person. But it's very much on how do we lead in a consistent and clear manner so that people know what to expect every time they show up in your presence. So people know when they meet me face-to-face, I'm exactly the same as I appear online. I speak exactly the same way. I am very clear about my values. I'm very clear with my what I will and won't do. And I'm also very generous with my time with people and holding space for people. So kindness for me, when I talk about, you know, being valued or people feeling valued, when I'm listened to and when space is held for me and I'm supported and I feel like I can trust the person I'm speaking to, that's kindness to me. So these are the kinds of, I suppose, themes and topics that I talk through in workshops with with businesses and with groups because I feel like a lot of the time we go in and we're told, well, this is your job description, this is your team, here's your computer, here's your tour of the office, here's your emergency exit. But if you're emotionally not connected to the team or to your job, 
how can you possibly expect to be as engaged or productive as, as you are needing to be to receive and create the best outcomes for the business and for yourself and stay well in the process? So, yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, when uh, you go for a traditional interview, often you're asked, you know, what would you do in the first six months in this role, particularly in a leadership role? Actually, they ask a lot about, you know, what would be your, you know, your 100 day priorities to get sorted in this role? Yeah. Um, what I find when talking to leaders, particularly leaders who are struggling, mm -hmm. is that if I ask the question, what are you in in this organization to do? The answer that I quite often get is my job is X, my yes. function is X, or, yes. you know, or I'm I'm a leader of this function or what have you. Um, and, you know, my own personal journey of moving to run my own businesses was partly driven by um, wanting to be able to say really clearly anytime I'm asked, I'm here to do this and these are the reasons why and this yeah. is why I work in this way. And yeah. it doesn't matter which client I'm with, which of the businesses I'm you know, fronting at that moment, you know, yeah. um, it is the clear sense of purpose and the why and that then drives the passion and, and the clear expectations the ability to say no, which you cannot do mm -hmm. um, with any confidence unless you set those clear boundaries or clear expectations, Actually. you know. Um, and so you can't even have a trade-off conversation with people or yourself if you haven't set your clear um, clear expectations, set your service levels. You know, how many hours are you actually going to mm -hmm. work? Are you available on a Friday afternoon? Yes. You know, all of that kind of stuff. If you don't know that for yourself, then when people make outrageous, um, you know, <laughs> demands on your Nobody time, would do that. What are you talking about? Nobody would expect you to be on at midnight on a Saturday night. What? <laughs> uh, you, just, you don't have any way of making a, you know, either say no or having a trade-off conversation to say, here's the reasons why I won't do that, but I will do this because you haven't actually taken that time. Mm. And it's, you know, I absolutely agree with what you say about the induction, you know, like you induct people into um, particularly a leadership role. Mm. Um, and often leaders have come up through the ranks so they know what to do to do the jobs of the people that they're leading but they yes. don't know how to necessarily be a leader in a strategic way or you know a cross-functional leader where you've got some areas that they're not confident in the technical mm. part of, of what that looks like and we don't as a rule have an induction process that talks about okay, well, here's the purpose of the organization and here's the values. Mm. Take some time and think about in the one, two, five, however many years you think you're going to be here, what is your contribution to that going to be? Mm. We don't personalize it. No. In, in fact, we depersonalize it. We say this organization has three these three key values and this is our mission statement. You need to know all of those by mm. rote. Mm. Um, and, you know, and well, it's meaningless, you know, I used to learn, I used to know Latin by rote when I was at school because I ended up doing Latin. That's such, such an English thing, isn't it? My dad oh, speaks. I know. Right? I, I mean, but I didn't, I don't know it. I can't read it. All I could do was just revert, you know, regurgitate yeah. it. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, I can, I can know a mission statement of an organization and have have no concept whatsoever about how I'm going to measure my own contribution, my own success. And therefore you lose confidence. Yeah. 
um because you can't you you're expecting external validation of your contribution against something which is a 50 year strat strategic goal that is meaningless yeah. to anybody in the organization mm. um so i you know i really get that i really get that point and it seems to me like a lot of organizations are they're looking for some a different way of getting in and breaking some of those habits yeah um and kindness seems to be one of those ones where nobody dis can disagree with it no everybody, everybody wants some. but they can but they can so <laughs> you know it's really it's really interesting because people go no kindness pff, that's just fluffy who needs that yeah we all need to be kind whatever it's not a strategic objective you know what if people were kinder within business and they understood kindness the way that i understand it and the way that i embody that in the work that i do they would be absolutely so amazed because it has a it has a physical return on investment and I think that's what people don't don't understand when you start talking about what were traditionally known as the soft skills so your empathy and your compassion and your and your kindness and your love and that I'm loving speaking of love I'm loving seeing all these discussions being had a lot more on LinkedIn um, particularly because I'm looking at business leaders and thought leaders who are starting to have these discussions around businesses can't, they can no longer afford to not take this seriously and take their human part of their business seriously because you're not going to attract the best talent. You're certainly not going to retain your best talent. And it was really interesting. There was a Forbes article which was just released in July around, you know, the top, I think it was about 1,700 people interviewed or surveyed and kindness and mental health together were seen as two of the top reasons why somebody would apply for a job and stay at a job. And I thought, hallelujah. The word is out there. We're talking about <laughs> because, you know, at a core level we all know, we all want to feel like we matter. And so the more that we can do that within a workplace for people and the more that we can create a culture that embraces whole humanness, look at me on my soapbox now, but the more that we can do that and bring that into the workplace, the more we're going to have happier, healthy, thriving staff who are going to want to work harder for you. It, it's just a no-brainer for me. I, yeah, I completely agree. And, I, I mean, I guess I would go, um, I would take that into the realm of, kind of planetary kindness you know mm. like we're there's a lot of focus still on organizations and leadership and you know products and what have you and it seems as though we're 20 years behind where we need to be in relation to uh partnering with nature and the environment and of oh, course so, stop. Uh, I love your I love your environmental process I'm like she's my human <laughs> I just I've gotten to that point where I'm going to shout it every time I can and you know and be subtle when I can but you know yeah. it, it just seems crazy you know it seems crazy that we know that um, mental health emotional well-being physical well-being are all uh, exponentially increased if you have nature if you yes. are doing good if there is yes. biodiversity if you can hear the birds yes um, all you can of touch the grass things. you can, can touch see a grass. tree you know you can feel the gale force winds if you live in wellington yes. on your face. Yes. <laughs> it, it makes you remember that you're alive yes um and, and that you're human 
absolutely we've That's forgotten right. that we're human you know it's really interesting oh, i love this look at look at us getting into the nitty-gritty it's only taken us you know but um officers are not designed for humans i'm going to say it on the record if you can't open a window in your office who would design that i, I get so tired when i go into an office that has no windows that i can open and that has no no natural light. I've been in offices where there's been barely any natural light, so it's the, the fluoros above. If you want your people to thrive, bring the nature in or let them get out. <laughs> yeah. Or why not design an office environment that is a bit of both, right? Um, it just seems crazy. These glass fronted, um, you know, behemoth buildings that mm. you know, show you the beauty of nature, but don't allow you to touch Get it, into or experience it. it or breathe it. Yeah. I mean, years and years ago, I, I lived um, in Manchester and I, I worked, um, I led an organization that supported asylum seekers and refugees. So it was really, really intense. Yeah. Uh, and the the local council found a, a a little office for for our team to kind of be situated in, which was sort of safe um, because mm -hmm. at that time in the UK and mm -hmm. quite like now, I suspect you know it was kind of dangerous to be working in support of asylum seekers and refugees yeah. because of all yeah. the bigotry and hatred. But this office that they found for us had um, three sets of bars on the windows oh, and four locks on the door. Beautiful. And so, you know, I used to get there at seven o'clock in the morning in the oh, dark goodness. and you couldn't really see out because they couldn't clean the windows because of oh, all because the security of the bars. bars. <laughs> um, and you couldn't go out walking because it was in, you know, at that time, it, it was in an unsafe <laughs> um, uh, part of Sounds the, awesome. the city. Yeah, super awesome. <laughs> yeah. And then I'd leave in the dark. And so, no. you know, I, I would, I, I'd kind of be, I would be a robot. I was mm. a robot. I mean, luckily we yeah. were working for a, you know, a cause that we were all passionate about. Social impact, team, yeah. You know, social impact and, and mm. a lot of people in, in those kind of social impact organisations are exactly the people who don't get kindness from yeah. external, you know, the newspapers or people walking down the street or whatever it is. Um, and they're driven by this innate kindness, yeah. do good and what have you. And that drives them for a long time until quite often they burn they out. Burn out. Um, but I can remember, you know, it's turning into spring and being able to come come home with with seeing a little bit of daylight. So um, I, you know, it's really so sad. depressing. <laughs> it's so depressing now I think about it. Um, so, you know, I, I just am this huge believer in um, this kind of partnership with the natural world. Mm -hmm. And apart from anything, you know, in 20, 30 years, as you'll know from my posts, mm -hmm. we may not have a kind of world that's safe. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if we don't start now in thinking, well, we can be kind, we can work mm -hmm. in a different way, we can have um, flexible working policies, yeah. um, we can have organizational um, procedures and buildings and energy usage that doesn't take away from the environment, but in fact, regenerates, we can situate that organization within a local community where it's seen yeah. as, you know, a valuable part of the community, we can do all of those things. So why, why don't we do them now? Mm -hmm. And then we can innovate from there to help with some of these bigger crises that are absolutely just around the corner, if not here already.
Mm. that's my and I love a good soapbox as you know so no bring it on I say um I always bring in nature wherever I am you can see I've got a plant you can see it behind there (laughs) you've got my little plant behind me I've got another plant on my desk but wherever I am I've got all my windows open as well wherever I am I have to have a plant on my desk or multiple I have to have the window open if I can and if I don't, I feel like I'm withering and dying. And I don't, I, I know that I'm not alone because I watch I watch people in an office. They'll come in, they'll sit at their desk, they might not move very much because they'll, and we're all, you know, we'll have that happen because we get engrossed in what we're doing, or someone who's sitting at a reception desk or someone who's sitting somewhere that can't move. But why not create spaces around people who aren't able to actually physically leave their space why not bring that into being closer to them so all my workshops I include nature connection absolutely so forest because I actually do women's connection circles as well so we all always have a forest bathing um, part of our women's circles and even when I've done keynote speaking I've brought in nature parts of nature to incorporate into my you know my presentation and it really surprises people but the way that it invigorates them and they get interested and they get really curious and the energy lifts and it doesn't take much it really doesn't take much to just bring those little bits and pieces into I'm really sorry I've got the someone's decided to do some um, chainsawing outside Hopefully they're not cutting any trees down. I hope not. I really hope not. Otherwise I'm going to tell them off. (laughs) No, it really doesn't take much to bring a bit of the outside in to energise, you know, people. So what's next for Sophie and Meta Leaders and Kindness Circles and Connection Circles and all of that Mm. stuff? Well, I'm actually taking a little bit of a break from traveling yes yes so we're going to travel for three and a half months so we'll be doing uh we leave cams and we're traveling back down the east coast of australia with our boys we're taking our boys out of school so we're going to give them the school of life for the term four and what i'm doing in that time i've got a a a conference presentation that I'm doing on mental health and kind leadership in September on the Gold Coast so I'm super excited about that it's at the uh, Workplace Mental Health Symposium and I've got another couple of workshops which I already had booked in which I'll be doing as well but apart from that I am just going to focus on doing some ad hoc work around speaking and then we'll launch into 2024 with Uh, a lot more of our women's connection circles and we're going to have a retreat in the middle of the year Uh, if it'll be an eco retreat so we've actually we're actually going to make it very connected to the natural world and there's you know um very limited very limited it's all off grid so I'm very excited about that one and really getting us settled on the on the farm and getting our kids settled back into nature and life back there In regards to uh, the kindness part of my work, I've got uh, a few articles which are actually due to be released over the next couple of months. So I'm really excited about that. So I'll be sharing them on LinkedIn and my social media once they're released and I'm able to share that. Um, 
because a couple of them are, are national. So, yeah, so I really, for me, it's just a matter of I'm just going to be immersing, immersing myself in nature for the rest of the year, but also really stepping back and doing a lot more writing. I want to focus a lot, a lot more on my why and my purpose and why I'm doing what I'm doing and what I want to put out into the world from 2024. So it's a, it's almost like a wintering for me at the moment. And I'm just going to, um, I don't know, marinate in, in the, 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 the step back and the, the turn inward for a few months, I think. It sounds amazing. And I know um, I have this concept of daydreaming, you know, and how mm -hmm. important it is for your yeah. brain to kind of daydream about yeah. this. And the the beauty of being, you know, on a trip where, you you know, you might have some lines in the sand of where you have to be somewhere at a certain mm. time, but generally you can kind of go wherever mm. you want to go. Mm. It's, it's a little bit like what your brain does when you are daydreaming. Um. Uh, it goes where, you know, it takes you down some sort of roads that you might not normally think you're going to go and you end up yep. in really interesting destinations. So. Yeah. You know, I would say you're, you know, rather than marinating, which <laughs> sounds like you're a piece of meat. I'm going to roll around in it, <laughs> immerse myself. <laughs> I would say you're, you know, you're having a, an immersive daydreaming, um, you know, marathon and, and amazing things will come out, I have no doubt. I re thank you. And I really love that, uh, that way of thinking about it because, for me creativity is one of my top five values and I feel that often when we are in the you know the doing the constant doing and the constant planning and we've got to have this done by this time and that you know and I know that you know I'm in a very very fortunate position that we're able to do this but we have actually manufactured our life to be able to do this this way as well but being able to create spaciousness will then create expansiveness and I feel that yeah, I feel like there's going to be some some really exciting creative projects that that drop in over the next six months, and I'm really excited to see where that might um, might lead the kindness revolution into its next evolution. Well, listen, I know it took it took us about four attempts to get to this call. I also know that we had a big conversation before we even started <laughs> recording this podcast. Um, and I will definitely take you up on your offer of coming to the Please. farm in Adelaide with You're welcome wins. You are um, welcome. So, you know, thank you so much. You are a real inspiration to a lot of people. And mm -hmm. certainly this I awesome. follow everything that you do and I love to see your smiling uh nature-based uh, videos they always put me in a in a good mood so thank oh, you so much for your time and sharing your story I really appreciate it oh, it's been lovely and I just you know everything always happens exactly when it's meant to happen so I feel that you know we might have taken four four attempts to get here but we got here and it was absolutely beautiful chatting to you so thank you for sharing so openly your journey and your story as well it's you know it's why I love jumping on these kinds of conversations you know you get that human to human connection and and we get to share some more beauty and, and joy in in the world so thank you so much you're welcome thank you thank you so much for listening and thanks as always to the generosity of our delightful guests the stories of how others have faced up to their challenges 
can help give all of us courage to keep going with our own. For more great episodes, blogs, learning packages, go to the humansatwork.org website. Thank you.